Hey, good morning, SunWest. Uh, welcome back to Church at Home. And I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I hope you're well celebrated uh, today. Uh, this is your special day. Facebook reminded me, I don't know if you ever get those m- uh, memories that show up, uh, you know, this time a few years ago or whatever. Facebook reminded me of a Father's Day letter that my youngest son sent to me, uh, uh, I think about three or four years ago. And, uh, and it, it just caused me to reflect on that moment. I'm going to share the note with you. This is what he wrote. Uh, you probably can't read it, so let me help you read it. It's Father's Day. Enough of mom. I hope you have the best day. Enough of mom. I hope you have the best day. So we know moms are the real heroes, uh, and we should be selling them, celebrating them every other day of the year. Uh, but for all those dads out there, I do hope, uh, that this day uh, is an encouragement, uh, to you and your families. Uh, we're going to jump right back into Mark here in a minute, but I did want to pause before we uh, jump into Mark chapter 10, just revisit very quickly. Last week, we did a one-off Vision Sunday. If you haven't had a chance to, uh, to watch the video from our church at home uh, last week, we did a Vision Sunday where we talked about op- opportunity or obstacle and a little bit around regathering as, uh, as a church. Uh, we know that phase two has been uh, launched at Alberta. There's some uh, restrictions that have been lifted that allow for some freedoms with faith communities to come back together. Uh, there's no cap on uh, the amount of people that we are able to gather. So many assume we just jump right back into services. And I just want to clean up a couple of things, clear up some things, because there was some confusion. We had some people that came back and said, so does that mean, you know, in light of last week's message, does that mean we're never gathering again? Just to be clear... No, we are going to gather again. That is our plan. That's our hope. That's our desire. We look forward to gathering again. We are currently uh, working at what that might look like. Uh, what we were saying last week is we are not going to rush back to physically gathering uh, for, a, for a number of reasons. Um, because of the social distancing requirements that are still there, uh, because of requirements around attendance, because of requirements around kids, because of, um, because of the strong encouragement not to sing together that the government has given, uh, because that's a high-risk activity. Uh, and many of you are missing the larger group gathering because of worship. But if we gather together, we wouldn't be worshiping in the way that we typically do uh, either. Um, and there are challenges with, with kids. And so we just really feel like it's important to pause. We want to be conservative on this curve because we want to operate in alignment with what our government is asking us to do. We believe that's part of what it means to be a good neighbor. Uh, it also, being a good neighbor means to look out for those uh who are the most vulnerable in our communities. And we know that there are many people that would choose not to engage uh, on those Sunday mornings. And so we wanted to come up with a plan that could reach as many people as possible, that could have as high engagement as possible, but still meet the needs of our community to be together uh, during these summer months. And so we came up with a vision last Sunday uh, instead of looking at these as obstacles, to look at the opportunities that God might be inviting us to. We've always been a church that wanted to be disciples who are making disciples. Uh, and that happens best in small groups and in uh, intimate community. And so we're ramping up our group's ministry for the summer. Uh, that doesn't, like I said, doesn't mean we're not going to gather, but we are going to spend 
uh, time during the summer uh, evaluating what that gathering might look like. Uh, it might mean that we gather together in September when we launched that w- at our kickoff. That was maybe our initial plan. Uh, but now that things are moving more quickly, we will continue to evaluate our, la- our large group gatherings every single week. So that's uh, just our commitment to you. Uh, it's on the table. We are always talking about it and discerning when's the right time and what is that going to look like. Uh, but in the meantime, please take advantage to lean into, I think, what God is inviting us to, to be people of intentional community and discipleship. Uh, there was great response last week. Uh, so many of you reached out after Sunday service, texted, emailed, and we had a goal to have at least uh, a minimum of 20 groups, and I look forward to launching those and reporting on how many groups we have offering in the coming week. Uh, but you still have a couple of days to register a group if you've taken starting point uh, and you're someone uh, that thinks there's an opportunity out there for you to lead and gather people together, and that might be leading a social, serve, study, um, or support group. Uh, I would love to hear from you and support you as you uh, launch that group. Maybe you would like to uh, do a church at home live watch party. We have a number of families that have actually uh, connected with a couple of other families and said, hey, let's do church intentionally together on Sunday mornings. Uh, but even after Sunday morning, it's posted. You could do it on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Uh, but the idea is to start doing church again together uh, in community. Uh, so, so let me know if that's something that would interest you as well. Um, and then lastly, the one thing I want to highlight for you is I just talked to Camp Evergreen, which is a SunWest camp that we support, and uh, they're located north of Calgary, and they have re-envisioned what they're doing with their camp this summer because they canceled their summer camps for uh, all of the restrictions out of COVID, but they're, they're bringing in uh, families for camping, and I phoned them and I said, hey, you got any open weekends where nobody's booked it yet? Uh, and they did have one open weekend left, and so I said, SunWest wants to book it. And so uh, they are practicing all the social distancing requirements. They're going to be really good at it by the end of summer. And so August 28th and 20, or 28th to 30th, I would love you to book it on your calendar. Uh, we're going to do church at camp. And if you can come uh, and and book an RV site. Uh, you can uh, book one of their cabins as a family. And uh, we are hoping to get as many SunWesters out there as possible for the weekend. And we'll do church out there together at the end of summer. Uh, and you can register for that at Camp Evergreen uh, at their website directly. And there's going to be more information on that coming, but I did want to get that out to you so you can block that off on your calendar. Uh, I'm really looking forward to gathering together in that environment and doing life together for a weekend at the end of summer. Okay. Let's jump into Mark. Uh, I've titled the sermon, Entering the Kingdom. And uh, Mark 10, there is so much going on in Mark chapter 10. And we can't, like has happened often, we can't dive all the way into every single piece. Um, And I want to focus on uh, verses 13 to 31. Uh, But there are, I'm, I'm not trying to jump over maybe more difficult passages. So I want to talk about the first section of Mark very, very quickly. It's not my main point, um, but I think it's worth pausing because it has caused a lot of questions for many people over the years. So Mark 10, uh, 1 to 12, Jesus talking about uh, marriage. And, uh, and sometimes uh, in, your, in, your book, in your Bibles, it has a title, uh, divorce or teaching on divorce. I really do believe that this is a passage about marriage. And I'll, and I'll talk about why in a second. So let me just read that really quickly. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, or sorry, and again, and he was, and as was his custom, he taught them. So crowds came. Really important. Jesus 
Jesus responding to the crowds. And the Pharisees came up, who were in the crowd, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? So really important to understand in the context of what's happening. Jesus gaining popularity. There's crowds there. We've already talked about that. But the Pharisees um, believed that Jesus was blasphemous, that he was out of line. And so they began to ask him questions, not because they wanted to know the answer, but because they wanted to trap him into saying something uh, that would give them reason uh, to discipline him in some form and eventually reason to crucify him. So they're testing him. And... And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You've probably heard that phrase at weddings. I'm doing a number of weddings this this, this summer, I did one yesterday, and I say this phrase at every wedding, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, uh, asked him, so Jesus teaching the crowds, responded to the Pharisees, and now in a separate location, he's meeting with his disciples, talking to them uh, about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And this has been uh, a very difficult passage over the years in the history of the church. Uh, and it's often been used to actually bring shame to people who have experienced divorce, who have gone through a divorce. And I, I didn't want to just skip over this passage and jump into the next section, but I did, but I did want to reference and, and look at this really quickly. Um, and so just quickly, at that time, a man could... Uh, divorce his wife at any moment. Give, write her a certificate of divorce for any reason. For a little re- as little reason as, I don't feel attracted to you physically anymore. I'm, I'm going to divorce you. And he would write her a certificate of divorce. And the woman would have actually very little rights. Uh, and after she was divorced, it was, ac- it was very unlikely uh, for her to be desirable for another man to choose to marry her. And so the women were actually at the mercy of the men in this culture. And Jesus uh, here, and we've talked about the raising up of valleys, bringing down in the mountains. Jesus here is elevating a demographic uh, and giving them human rights in a culture and an environment where they had very little. If we think about the audience that he's speaking to, Jesus is talking to the crowds and to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are referring to Moses' law. They're trying to use the law to, uh, to guard their position. And Jesus doesn't play that game. He doesn't, he's not going to manipulate the law of Moses. And he, he says that God gave you this law because of hardness of heart. What he's saying is uh, that you can't handle the ideal or the standard that God actually has for you. And so God, in his grace, accommodated your brokenness. And, and that's why this existed. But that is not the ideal that Jesus is inviting you, inviting you to, that God is inviting you to. And, and so Jesus goes to a greater ideal. He goes back to the creation story and he says, in cre- at the beginning of creation, uh, there was man and female and God joined them together. And Jesus uses that as the foundation to talk about the ideal of marriage. And I believe Jesus is talking about the ideal of marriage. Uh, he's not addressing the issue of divorce primarily. In fact, he is giving the woman equal rights 
in the marriage in an equal standard as he is giving the men. He's saying to the men, you can't just be flippant about marriage. This is a covenant. This is, this is what God instituted in the very beginning of creation. Uh, and I'm inviting you to a higher level of functioning. Now, often we, uh, we have, we have these, these ideals of these principles uh, that God invites us to. And I think God is inviting us all to live up to the standard that he's calling us. Uh, but sometimes when we don't meet those ideals, it results in shame. And I think this is where we miss the point in the passage, where this passage has been used to actually create shame or put burden on people because they've gone through hardship in their marriage, because there has been divorce. That's not the intent that Jesus is bringing. Jesus is actually t- removing shame. He's elevating women to have rights. And when we use this passage as a context for shame or putting a burden on somebody, we're actually, I think, moving out of the spirit of what Jesus was trying to do in that moment. Uh, and so Jesus, yes, holds up this ideal, but he doesn't hold up the ideal uh, in a way that is, is, is going to bring shame. And I think that's why he talks privately with the disciples after he addresses the crowd, after he addresses the Pharisees, and then they have a conversation about marriage and divorce, not in front of the crowd, uh, because Jesus is actually trying to raise up the valley, bring down the mountain, and create uh, a kingdom of equality and opportunity. So uh, there's lots we can say on this, this passage, uh, but I didn't want to skip on it, uh, skip over it. So I want to look at Mark uh, chapter 13, uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, we see Jesus talking about children, and then he's going to talk uh, to, uh, to a man uh, after he, he talks and teaches on children. So let's look at the first section, 13, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so there's this moment uh, where the where Jesus is actually standing up for children saying, don't stop them from coming to me. And it says that he's indignant. And this word, and we've, we've talked about this word before, it, it actually has correlations with anger and passion. Like Jesus is angry about this. Uh, now we need to think about what did children represent and mean at this time in the first century. They meant, and they were associated with, with something far different than maybe we associate with children now. Uh, children at this time were less than. They were less than human. They were, they had not yet arrived. They didn't have a voice. They were non-contributing members of society. That's how they were viewed. Um, and so they were seen as not as important, not as valuable in the family, in the society. Uh, and there was actually a focus on honoring your elders and those who were older, those who had wisdom, those who had experience, those who had had children, those who had grandchildren, those who had lived life before. And they, those elders were elevated to a position of status uh, in that culture. Age wasn't something to be feared, but it was actually something to look forward to. And being young was something you wanted to get out of because you uh, wanted to graduate and come into maturity and, and, and respect and honor in your community. So that was the world uh, that Jesus is speaking to. Now, if we think about the context in our world now, um, age is something we fear. Age is something we fear. We try and stay young. We try and avoid getting old. We, we do, there's so much, uh, 
you know, products and advertisements and ways that, you know, you can try and stay hip or stay young or, or, and we're trying our hardest not to grow old. And so we lift up the young as an ideal in our culture. And part of the point of this passage is that Jesus is elevating the position of children who were in a lowly position to a higher position. That's part of what's happening. Now today, people almost seem to do the opposite. They, they worship the young. They, uh, parents orient their lives around their kids. They, you know, I would go as far as to say that parents tend to worship their kids, that it, it becomes an issue of idolatry. Kids dictate the life of their parents and their schedule, and parents are seen just chasing their kids around. Something has flipped. And perhaps if we were to apply this part, this, this theme in our, uh, of the passage in our context today, I would actually argue that we need to think about how we apply it to the elderly. Maybe that's a demographic of people today that have been forgotten, that have been seen as uh, not able to contribute in the same way, that have seen as less than valuable, that have lost their voice. And I wonder if Jesus was speaking today, if he would actually challenge us in our culture not to forget the elderly, not to stop them from engaging in community, from coming to him, and to actually go out of your way to invite uh, the elderly into community and, and into places where they can contribute. I, um, I don't think it takes a whole lot of effort to see how we are pursuing the young and we desire to be young. We fear the old, we fear getting old and, uh, and we actually create boundaries and hindrances, uh, between ourselves and, uh, and the elderly community. So, uh, I think there's a challenge here actually, uh, to move our focus from, uh, the you know children not being elevated and recognize that we have elevated them and maybe that's part of the mountain that we need to bring down and the valley uh, that we need to bring up uh, is is with our elderly and so maybe if anything you get out of the sermon it's 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 elevating those people in your life that maybe you've forgotten you've moved moved on they maybe they live in um, you know the town you moved from and and this is you know God inviting you to actually reach out and and to remember them, uh, to visit the old folks' home, to participate in intergenerational community because every generation matters to God. But there's more going on in this passage. And that's all true, and I think this is rele- that was a relevant application. But the other thing going on here is that Jesus is telling them to receive the kingdom of God like a child. We often think Jesus is referring to how children are easily believe, they have easy faith, they're, they're gullible, they're optimistic, they don't doubt. Uh, this is actually not what Jesus is referring to. Children are dependent. This is what he's talking about. Children are dependent. Children have needs. Children are not too proud to receive help from others. Children, in many ways, are helpless and in need of help. This is, uh, this is the characteristic of children that Jesus is drawing upon. He is saying, receive the kingdom like a child because a child is ready and has a posture of receiving uh, because they do trust easily, but they also are in need of help. And they're willing to receive gifts. They're willing to receive help. They're not too proud. And so that kind of sets the table for the longer story in, Ch- in, in Mark, and that's uh, the story of the rich young ruler. And let's read it together. And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God 
alone. And so, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we, we need to recognize that eternal life in the original language speaks both to quantitative life, a life that is everlasting, uh, but it also speaks to qualitative life, uh, a quality of life uh, that is accessible to us today. So it's, it's, a, it's an eternal life, it's a richness of life today, but also one that will last forever. And so uh, this man comes, good teacher, what must I do to inherit this life? Um, and, uh, and, and the Jews at this time uh, actually believed uh, that God uh, had, had a life, had a future, had a hope for them, and there was a new heavens, a new earth that he was going to bring about, and, and there was going to be a day where he put everything back to rights, and the Jew, Jews believed in this physical resurrection that at the end of time that God would raise up uh, his people, and they believed at some future point uh, the faith w- that the faith will be raised up and God would establish the new heavens, a new earth. And, and so he is asking, how can I make sure that I'm in when that all happens? How can I participate in that reality? And in fact, this is what's behind the man's question. Rabbis would have answered this question uh, in in a similar in a similar way that the for the answer that the man was looking for. What do I need to do? What do I need to? Uh, how good do I have to be? What commandments do I need to obey? Uh, you need to do what God told you to do. And so let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, "Why do you why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." Uh, and as he was setting out on his journey. Oops, sorry. And then he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And so Jesus responds as a typical teacher or rabbi respond, like, here's all the commandments. And Jesus is actually setting them up. We, we don't necessarily see it, but he's setting up. Have you done all of this stuff? And so he gives this checklist. You know, the man's probably sitting there, don't murder, check, haven't done that, don't sleep around, check, don't steal, don't lie, honor my parents, check, check, check. He's, he's, he's checking all of the boxes. And Jesus recites to him the ten, uh, the, the first six of the Ten Commandments, uh, which the, which the Jewish folks would have memorized and tried to abide by and live by. Uh, but why does he only give the first six? Or sorry, the last six. He only recites the last six. Why doesn't he give the first four? Uh, because the first four, if you know what they are, are the four that talk about having no other gods. Jesus is setting the man up. Yeah, you've done these six, but there's actually a key theme here that you are neglecting. And Jesus is going to identify to this man that he actually has a God that he has put before the living God. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. And said to him, and, and so we need to recognize this is so important that Jesus loves this man before he responds to the invitation that he, Jesus gives him. That Jesus is love incarnate, and that love is not something that the man had to earn, but it was something that Jesus already had for him. And Jesus loves him enough to say some hard things to him. So he looked at him, he loved him, and he said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You know, that discipleship language. Come follow me, but sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. 
in some other translation, the NLT and the NIV translation says, the man's face was sad. And I think sad, um, sad is an understatement. Sorrowful almost gets there. Uh, but there, this is like a, a very uh, powerful word that is being used. Um, I remember a long time ago, the same son that wrote me uh, my Father's Day letter when he was much younger, um, had a soother. And he loved his soother. And he had multiple soothers. And we were trying to wean him off the soother because it was kind of getting to that awkward age where it's like, okay, you're probably old enough that you shouldn't have the soother in your mouth anymore. And so we were testing it out and we had started finding that he was hiding different soothers at different places in the house that he could go and retrieve at any point. Uh, and, and I just wondered what would happen if we just went cold turkey and got rid of his soothers. And so I had this... Um, I had this maybe evil idea um, that I thought would be a fun experiment. And, and so I took the soother out of his mouth and uh, I decided just to start with one and let's see how this would go. So I took the soother out of, out of his mouth and I took a pair of scissors. Uh, and I, I, I can remember it so vividly even to this day. I, I was looking at him, looking at him right in the eye and I took the scissors uh, to the soother and I cut it up in front of him, looking him in the eye. I think he's going to have to go to therapy later on in life because of this moment. Uh, and so I cut, the, I cut the soother, and he was pleading with me as I'm like slowly, he's like, no, Dad, no, Dad. He was starting to cry, uh, slowly, methodically cutting the soother. And then he started heaving, and he started hyperventilating. He fell down on the ground, and, and, he, and he couldn't even get his breathes out. And if he could breathe, he started screaming, and it was, it was hysterical. I'd never... I'd never seen him respond like that to anything. It was like his best friend had died. He was mortified. Uh, and, and when we think of this word, this word about sadness or being sorrowful, the, the old King James version of the Bible translates the word grieved. And I think this gets closer to it, that this man had a love. Uh, and Jesus actually is saying here that it was more than a love. It was an idol. It was, it was elevated to God's status. And the very thought of having that taken from him caused him great grief, caused him great reaction to the point that even though he wanted an eternal life, even though he wanted to follow Jesus, he didn't want it enough. He didn't want it more than he wanted his money. He didn't want it more than he wanted his status. He didn't want it more than he wanted his security. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? And the disciples were astonished because the belief at the time is that if you were wealthy, it was a sign of your favor and status with God. And Jesus is saying, no, that's actually not the case. This man is far from the kingdom uh, because he actually has an idol. Uh, and, and so he gives this very powerful statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which should be frightening for many of us. Now, what is 
happening here. And there's been a number of suggestions over the year that the eye of the needle, uh, it's not a literal needle. Back in those days, there were these gates in the walls of Jerusalem and there was a really narrow gate that was really hard to get through and it was called the eye of the needle. And if you're going in on a camel, then the camel had to actually crouch down and get on his knees to actually get through. So it wasn't impossible. It was just very awkward. And the, cam- the camel had to humble himself in order to get through the eye of the needle. Um, and after much study, it's just, that doesn't turn out to be true. There was no such thing as a gate uh, called the eye of the needle. And that, uh, that whole theory was just really propped up to make this statement more digestible. There was another explanation that's come out through the years where people have said, well, the word camel, camelon in the, in, in the Greek, and the word rope, camelon, are so similar. One has an E in it, a, a double E sound, and then the other one has an I. And so when they were copying the manuscripts, uh, it was actually supposed to be rope, uh, but it was mistakenly read as camel, and then some people wrote down the manuscripts as, uh, as camel instead of rope. And if it was a rope, uh, getting it through the eye of the needle would be very, very difficult, but you know, obviously you could maybe unthread the rope and find a way to get that rope through the eye. And it's, it's like, people, we're missing the point here. Uh, it almost sounds convincing, but it actually not only misses the point, it's making the opposite point. The point that Jesus is trying to say is there's nothing you can do to enter the kingdom. And it's not if you try hard enough, if you are creative enough, if you work at it long enough, then maybe eventually you'll be able to figure it out and you'll be able to enter the kingdom. The whole hyperbole is meant to bring us to a place of impossibility. That it is impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom because he has actually made an idol out of his money. Goodness, righteousness is not enough. No matter what you do, you cannot do enough. And then so the disciples said, who can be saved? And that's a great question. And why do you think Mark put the story of the child along with the story of the rich young ruler? Because the key to answering that question for the disciples is in the story of the child. Remember what Jesus said? Receive the kingdom of God like a child. What does that mean? Receive, he's saying that the kingdom is not for those who are holy, but for those who are helpless. The kingdom of God is not who are relying on their strength, but those who recognize their weakness like a child. The kingdom of God are not those who are self-sufficient and independent, but those who are dependent on. On God. The kingdom is available to everyone who recognizes that they are not God, that they are not self-sufficient, that they are actually helpless to do enough good to enter the kingdom. The kingdom is available to everyone who comes to Jesus like a child, ready to receive, because we recognize our weakness, we recognize our helplessness, and we recognize our need for dependence on God. And like I said, Jesus loved this man before he responded. And Jesus' love for us is not dependent on our response, but his love, but in his love, he allows us to choose if we're going to humble ourselves and receive from him, give up our gods and our idols and follow him or not. And even though it pains Jesus, he allows us to actually live in the consequences of our own choice. So Peter says, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus, we did. You know, you told him to do that. He didn't, but we have done that. And then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. And there's so much going on just in those few verses. Uh, but uh, the scholar Tim Geddert and another scholar, Gerard Lofink, uh, actually make the comment that he is talking about more than just getting hundreds more sisters or mothers. Or uh, it's, There's more than that going on. These uh, categories represent something to the Jewish people. You know, your home, leaving your home is representing a place of belonging. A place of belonging. And Jesus is saying, if you give up the place where you belong, I will give you a new place to belong, a hundred times greater than where you come from. When he's referencing siblings, brothers and sisters, it's, it's a reference to a community, to a family, to a people. And Jesus is saying, if you are willing to actually value and pursue uh, Jesus and his people, you will receive a hundred times more the community and the family than you have. When he's talking about mother and father, this is actually a connection to people's ancestry, where they come from, which represents their identity and who they are. Particularly in this culture, the family you came from actually labeled you and gave you an identity. And you saying, I am going to give you a new identity. You're going to be sons and daughters of God. And this is going to be a hundred times uh, more significant and uh, more fruitful and meaningful uh, than even your own earthly mother and father. When he's speaking of children, leaving behind your children, it, it's, it's representing security. It's, it's actually representing, in that time, your children were the ones that were going to support you. Um, I think parents are... <laughs> A little more skeptical maybe of that these days. Uh, but in that time, your children were going to take care of you. Uh, and, and this is a place of security uh, for you. Uh, that's what your children represented. And so Jesus is saying, you know, I have security that is beyond any security that this world can offer you. If you leave everything and follow me, trust me, I have a hundred times more security for you uh, than what you have on your own. Uh, legacy, when, when Jesus is talking about land, leaving land, you know, land in that time was significant even more than it is now because uh, it is a legacy. It was a place that belonged to you and your family. It was an inheritance that would be passed on. And Jesus is saying, if you give up your pursuit of your own selfish legacy, your own name, and pursue the kingdom of God and leave that behind, God is going to give you a legacy in his kingdom that is a hundred times more than you would be able to achieve on your own. Find belonging with God. Find your identity as a child of God. Find your family in the family of God. Don't cling to the security of, security of idols. God will provide ultimate security. Don't chase earthly legacy that's going to corrode and rust and be forgotten, but ch- chase eternal legacy that is found when we give our lives to Jesus and His kingdom that is going to endure forever. And so all of this brings us to this pinnacle moment where we must reflect and ask, who is the real rich young ruler? And Jesus is the real rich young ruler. Remember, Mark wants us to understand the identity of Jesus. And for those of us who have been reading carefully long, we are starting to recognize that Jesus is God. Remember, Jesus said, uh, who do you call good? No one is good except God. Well, he, in the story that we just read, and he's actually setting it up. He's like, don't call me good unless you're willing to call me God. God is the only one that is good. 
And so we got to conclude, well, if Jesus is God, he's actually good. And if Jesus is God, what did it mean for him to actually come to earth in the form of a human? And in Philippians 2, we know that Jesus gave up his rights, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that Jesus, who was, uh, who was rich in everything as God, actually humbled himself in the nature of a baby, in the nature of a human, lived his life on this earth, with all the parameters that what it meant to be a human and died a criminal's death on the cross, that Jesus was willing to leave the riches of heaven so that he could be in relationship with you and I. And so he is not inviting us to do anything different than he has already done. Jesus left everything to be obedient to the Father so that we could have eternal life. And he is inviting you and I to say, are you willing to prioritize me, to be willing to leave anything, to receive the kingdom like a child in a place of helplessness, humility, weakness, dependency, and put your dependence on Jesus and follow Him. If you do that, you will enter the kingdom. You will receive the kingdom. You will receive eternal life, quantitative, qualitative life. And if you've never done that before, if you've never actually taken the step to respond to Jesus' invitation that he gave to the rich young ruler to receive the kingdom like a child. I believe that he's giving you that invitation now, wherever you're watching this from. And he's inviting you to say, hey, I have security, I have identity, I have legacy, I have all these things that you maybe look for in the world, but if you're willing to leave those and follow me, there's eternal life waiting for you. There's kingdom life waiting for you. And if you're in a place where you want to respond to the invitation, it, it's, the, it's the beginning of a relationship, the beginning of following. Uh, we just begin that relationship through praying to God, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our need for Him, uh, and beginning to follow Him with our lives. And I would invite you right now, as we're ending this service, I'm going to pray, and I would invite you to pray with me uh, in response uh, to the invitation that Jesus is giving you. So Jesus, we thank you that you love us. Before we even respond to you, before we do anything, your love uh, is already there. Uh, You don't love us based on what we do. And Lord, we recognize that because of that, there's nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing that we can do uh, to actually inherit the kingdom. And the only thing you're asking us to do um, is not a simple thing. It's not an easy thing. Um, But in many ways, uh, it's simple enough for a child to do. Um, and so, Lord, right now we just recognize that we are sinful people, that we make mistakes and we're in, in need of forgiveness. Would you forgive me? Lord, I recognize that we are helpless people, that there's nothing that we can do uh, to gain your kingdom, to, to have eternal life beyond your grace and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we receive that like a child. In helplessness, we say, we, we, we just say thank you for forgiving us, thank you for saving us, and we receive that gift. Lord, we recognize that we're broken and that we're in need of healing, and we ask that you would come in your grace uh, to heal us in our brokenness. Lord, we recognize that we have idols that we've put before you, and Lord, right now we repent of those idols, whether it's money, whether it's security, whether it's something else. Lord, we... Uh, we leave those, we, we repent of those, and we turn from those, and we say that you are God, that we are not, that you are God, that the things in this life cannot save us or help us, and we are dependent on you. And Lord, we thank you that you are strong to save. We thank you that you love us, and we desire to follow you in our lives 
and see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, I pray, we pray, amen. Well, thanks again for joining us, uh, SunWest. Some, go- some going deeper questions for you to dive deeper uh, in, your, uh, in your family, in your own reflection time, uh, and hopefully increasingly as we do church at home uh, live watch parties, you can do that in your church at home group. Um, so how were the children viewed in the first century? How might that change how we apply Mark 10, 13 to 16 today? You know, I mentioned maybe there's an application with the elderly. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, what is God... Re- inviting you to uh, in light of that. How does receiving the kingdom like a child help us unpack the story of the rich young ruler? How do you think these two are actually working together to help us understand the truth that Jesus uh, is inviting us to? Uh, Why do we often find it hard to be dependent, to express our needs, to repent? What do we lose out on when we don't do that, when we're unwilling to do that? And then lastly, take time this week asking God if there are any idols in your life that are holding you back. Any idols. And, and it might not be money. I know the, the story was about money, but it could be anything in your life that's holding you back. And spend time in listening prayer. See what he brings to mind. And ask him if you were to leave them, what would he give you in return? Then listen to what he's saying and act upon it. And as we saw with the rich young ruler... Uh, that Jesus had so much more than he wanted to give him in return if the rich young ruler was only willing to leave uh, his, his security and his wealth. And often we don't see what Jesus wants to give us in return. So I would just invite you, if you do recognize that there's an idol in your life, to spend time praying and ask God, Lord, is there something you would give me in return if I were to leave this? So blessings, Sun West. Uh, we look forward to uh, launching our group's ministry uh, in the coming week and, uh, and hopefully increasing uh, the opportunities that we have to connect with one another and journey together. Uh, we're looking forward to what God's going to do in our life as a church this summer. Talk to you soon.